Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Internet Archive is a Bay Area institution that serves people all over the world. It's a different kind of library, one dedicated to universal access to all knowledge. To that end, they've acquired and scanned millions of books, documented innumerable web pages, and otherwise acted as our digital memory. Of all the techno-utopian projects that arose in the 1990s, it's one that stood the test of time. But... In a recent federal court ruling, four large publishers, and there aren't many more than that these days, won a major copyright infringement lawsuit against the Internet Archive. And its supporters worry that the ruling may jeopardize the role libraries can play in our ever more digital lives. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So, libraries are many things. Nowadays, they serve as major access points for digital and governmental services. They're on the front lines of problems on the streets. They contain important archives. But their core function is to buy, hold, and provide access to books. The whole model, though, was built on the idea of physical books. And since the dawn of the Internet, there have been very tricky questions about how books in digital format should work. And even more specifically, how a library should relate to all the different kinds of computer things we call ebooks. Now, earlier this month, the Internet Archive lost a case that could have a serious impact on the future of libraries, both the Internet Archive itself and other institutions that might have wanted to follow its lead. Here to catch us up on this news before we get into the discussion, we're joined by Sydney Johnson, KQED reporter who wrote a great story on the Internet Archive. Thanks for joining us, Sydney. Thanks for having me. So let's just start at the the very top. I mean, how does the Internet Archive generally lend books through its kind of open library program? 
Yeah. So the Internet Archive has a physical warehouse where it keeps all of these books. I, I actually had a chance to see it, and it was pretty mind-blowing. Oh, really? Um, and on the website, it lends those books one-to-one. So if you want a book you and it's already being loaned out, you have to wait. And if you want it and someone doesn't have it, then you can take it and loan it, kind of in the way that a traditional library mm-hmm. would work. Um, yeah. And they've been doing that for years and years. Yes, that's been the model for, you know, almost 20, almost 30 years, actually, since the Internet Archive has been around. Um, however, during the pandemic, when libraries were largely closed, at least their their physical locations, um, the Internet Archive did this sort of radical thing. They said, we are going to actually remove some of those wait lists and make it so if you want a book and someone else wants that book at the same time, that you can still loan it and Mm. have access to it. Um, That was an emergency program. They called it the National Emergency Library. And there were actually other library institutions that were a part of that, too. But it only lasted for about two months. Uh, By June 2020, they stopped doing it. And that is when this lawsuit came into place. Got it. And this lawsuit is basically four of the major publishers. And because of the consolidation in the publishing industry, this is basically a big chunk of publishing came after them. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're names that you've probably heard of. Penguin Random House. Uh, Hatchet Group, HarperCollins, and Wiley, which are four of the biggest publishers globally today. Yeah. And how did this lawsuit actually proceed at this point? So it's been a couple of years. And just this uh, or last month, um, a judge, a federal judge in New York ruled in favor of the publishers and said that actually the Internet Archive did violate copyright on some of the titles that are on its digital library. Um, Those were some books by authors that you've probably heard of, Malcolm Gladwell, Toni Morrison, authors that we love. Um, And so the, the judge ruled in favor of the publishers. And now the Internet Archive and all of its supporters locally and globally um, are appealing that ruling. Um, before we bring in uh, folks from the Internet Archive and also some uh, some law uh, chops here, um, what do you see as being really at stake on a kind of more you know societal or kind of philosophical level? Yeah, well, I got interested in this story um, for a couple different reasons. Uh, one, I, I actually covered education for a long time um, and, and education technology in particular. So I've seen just how, you know, young people today especially are borrowing books online. Ebooks are becoming so normalized for our society today. And at the same time, University libraries, places like the San Francisco Public Library, they are also in the process and and for a long time have been of moving books off the shelves to make room for new books. And also, as we know, space is extremely precious. And so for universities, you know, consolidating library space is a big discussion. And in some places like the University of California, um, how do we more efficiently use, you know, library spaces when we need to make room for more classrooms and more students? And that often involves moving some books into storage 
Uh, it often involves donating books directly to the Internet Archive. Um, so I, I see just how the Internet Archive has actually webbed itself sort of into the you know, traditional library system, even though it's this, you know, new age sort of approach to book lending as well. And so I think now that this whole one-to-one ebook lending um, process has been called into question, it really raises a lot of concerns for folks who are really passionate about open access information and just library and book sharing in general Mm -hmm. as we're, you know, digitizing more and more of our lives. We are talking about the Internet Archive, which is fighting a lawsuit from publishers who claim that the archive's digital lending practices have violated copyright law. We're, we've been joined first by Sydney Johnson, reporter with KQED News. Love to hear from you, too. How should libraries work online? Or, you know, if you're an author or a publisher, are you satisfied with the way that ebooks are acquired and lent by libraries? The number is 866-733-6786. Maybe you're a user of the Internet Archive's open library. Why'd you use it? How'd that experience go? The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. So let's add our other guest, Sydney. Let's add Brewster Kale, digital librarian and founder of the Internet Archive. Welcome, Brewster. Thank you very much for having me. We're also joined by Tyler Ochoa, professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. Welcome, Tyler. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Yeah. So, Brewster, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you are reacting to the both the lawsuit and then this recent ruling by the federal judge? Uh, It's actually a little uh, surprising and traumatic um, because what libraries have always done is we buy books, we preserve them, and we lend them out. That's what we do. Um, But uh, starting many years ago now, the big publishers have basically said you can't buy books. You have to license them in such a way that they can take them away or change them at any time. And by running a library, we said, well, that doesn't really work for us. So we buy what we can, and then we scan what we have to. And so we've been doing this now with the Boston Public Library and 80 other libraries for over 10 years. Um, and it's it was working out uh, just fine. And this lawsuit was a real surprise because we've been working with these publishers for years. But they decided to just try to clamp down on the concept of library lending. Hmm. And do you feel like it endangers the open library practices that you've had? Or do you think it was just really about the Co- the national, you know, emergency library practices in which you kind of moved away from this one-to-one lending model. No, everything about their first claims and also what what they uh, uh, wanted summary judgment on is all about controlled digital lending. So the idea of taking even out of print materials, things from the 20th century, and making those available to those that turn to their screens to answer questions. This is the time for libraries to help people understand what's true, not true. Um, we we really per- up years ago to try to reinforce Wikipedia mm-hmm. by going and prioritizing the books that are referenced in Wikipedia so people could fact check and be able to go and make sure that those books are what it is that the assertion in Wikipedia said and going and working with these online uh, environments where people are kind of dipping in and out of books in like five minutes, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's what's really at stake here. 
Right, right, right. You're like, I'd like to check this botanical reference from 1895 or or 1945, right? Those books would be treated differently by copyright law, even though, um, you know, as a knowledge seeker, you might not have see any difference between those two books. You're exactly right. Or you just take even the history of World War II um, as, and these or uh, the Japanese internment. Um, all of these things happen while copyright is sort of still lingering on and on and on. If we're going to be able to have the library that, frankly, I got to benefit from growing up available to this next generation, we're going to have to go and take these books and make them available in some controlled way. And that's what controlled digital lending uh, is. Hmm. Um, Tyler Ochoa, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law, um, how do you see the sort of merits of the lawsuit itself, like the specific issues that are dealt with in, within the lawsuit? Well, Brewster is a very passionate advocate for libraries. And in many, many cases, uh, we would find ourselves on the same side. Uh, but here, I have to agree with the judge in New York that under copyright laws, it currently exists. Uh, what they are doing with their controlled digital lending program is a copyright infringement and is not a fair use under copyright law. Hmm. And what what specific piece of it? Was it the part during the COVID times when the sort of wait lists were removed or a broader understanding of that? Uh, the judge's ruling is based on a broader understanding. Uh, so it is not limited to the National Emergency Library I think that is the incident that prompted the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But the lawsuit is targeted at the controlled digital lending program itself because the Internet Archive is making reproductions of copyrighted works. They are distributing copies of copyrighted works to patrons. They are displaying those copyrighted works to patrons. Those are all things that copyright law gives the publisher the exclusive right to do. Uh, subject to uh, a doctrine that we call fair use. Uh, and the lawsuit was all about the application of the fair use doctrine to this program. Yeah. We are going to get to some of the counter arguments to the counter arguments here. We're talking about the Internet Archive. Sees itself as a library collecting digital history, now fighting a lawsuit from publishers who claim the archive's digital lending practices violate copyright law. We are joined by Tyler Ochoa, professor at Santa Clara University School of Law, Brewster Kale, digital librarian and founder of the Internet Archive. And we're being guided through this by Sydney Johnson, reporter with KQED News. Love to hear from you. How should libraries work online? Have you experienced or used the Internet Archive's open library? And what was that experience like? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on the social things with KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Internet Archive and the future of libraries here. The Internet Archive is fighting a lawsuit from publishers who claim the archive's digital lending practices violate copyright law. We're joined by Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive, Sidney Johnson, reporter with KQED News, and Tyler Ochoa, professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. I'm going to hop into uh, our first call here. We're going to go to uh, Steve in San Francisco. Welcome, Steve. Hi, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. Okay, so uh, I guess my 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 main question was: um, Does the Internet Archive have a a uh, uh, some kind of standard or procedure where uh, written material, books, novels remain intact as the author intended? I mean, I know I'm reading a lot these days about uh, books being altered and changed to excise certain types mm. of maybe less appropriate mm-hmm. uh, material to our day and time now, but that, you know, yeah, when they were written, it was a, maybe a standard or it was a thing. A- anyway, I just wondered, does the Internet Archive have something where people don't go in and just change things willy-nilly, which I kind of understand Maybe Wikipedia does, for example, or other other types yeah. of digital platforms. That's a really that's a really interesting question, Steve um, Brewster. Why don't Why don't you take that one? I mean, just to maybe make um, a little more explicit what Steve is saying. Like, let's say a book used um, horribly racist language, you know, published in 1890 or in 1935. Um, how would your institution deal differently with that than, say, uh, a publisher of that book? I'm so glad you brought this up. It's coming up really right now because the publishers are changing Agatha Christie, Roll Dahl, and P.G. Woodhouse. Um, these are canons in uh, you know where they can change with the licenses of how uh, libraries, if they're licensed, they can change all of those books all at once in such a way that no libraries have a record of what they used to have. Mm-hmm. But the Internet Archive has physical copies of these materials, which we preserve. And we also then digitize these and then make them available um, and for fair uses, such as for the print disabled, for machine learning. So you could actually um, go and compare uh, editions. Um, all of that is, um, is, is good for libraries to do. And it's so important now as we're seeing authors, mainstream authors, and Actually, that they even know that they were changing Agatha Christie. Um, I think we, we're going to come to a time where it's not even possible to know because all of them change all at once electronically. If we just only serve the documents from the publisher's servers. So the libraries have a preservation role of historically what happened. We have to put things in context. So warn people maybe about what is being said and how, but that's what libraries do is they have past editions 
they record history, they preserve things, and we need to have this going forward. And that is what is at stake uh, in this change that's going on in this lawsuit. Yeah, just drilling in a little deeper on this, I mean, part of what you're arguing, right, is that libraries ownership, like the way that they take ownership of physical books is in fact different from even the way that, you know, the San Francisco Public Library, the Oakland Public Library provides access to books that uh, remain sort of within the publisher's control, right? That this is really part of the issue here is about ownership versus access to a service that allows you to read a book. Absolutely. This is this is all about digital ownership. And what they're saying is that it's going to be a Netflix of books and they can go and change and delete books at any time they want. And there's a privacy aspect, because if you go and borrow uh, an electronic book that San Francisco Public Library has, has licensed, then you are actually shuffled off to the publisher's platform, maybe OverDrive, maybe the publisher themselves. They can see every page turn of every reader. So the idea of having uh, a company go and watch over the shoulder of all readers is kind of, well, frightening. I, there's long history in libraries of people being rounded up for what it is that they've read uh, and bad things happening to them. So I think this could be a very good day for libraries because we have the the, the popular support. We have the funding support. Um, uh to go and buy books and preserve them. What's not happening is the publishers selling ebooks. They will not sell ebooks, except for small indie publishers like PM Press, hmm. 7-Eleven Press, uh, Seven Stories Press, 11-Eleven. So they're indie publishers and we want more of those. But the hmm. big boys are saying it is a license only regime in ebooks. And that's why we had to go and digitize these books. And they're they're not as good. You know, um, Tyler Ochoa, um, Santa Clara University School of Law, I wanted to ask you about this, the legal issues surrounding this. Like, what are the precedents that, you know, Brewster is kind of in the realm of like, this is how it should work. Um, what are the legal precedents that say, okay, given our copyright legacy, like the, the history of this going back in time in the United States and this new technology, how have courts tried to handle this issue? So there are precedents that can be cited in favor, but there are precedents that can be cited against. The basic, there are two basic principles that the Internet Archive is relying on. In a traditional library situation, lending is governed by something known as the first sale doctrine or the doctrine of exhaustion. And that says that if you own a physical copy of a book, then the publisher's rights in that book have been exhausted to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And you are allowed to redistribute that copy of the book without further permission from the copyright owner, right? So if you've bought a book, you can give it to a friend to read and the copyright owner doesn't have anything to say about that. If a library has bought a physical book, they can lend it out to any number of people and the copyright owner doesn't have anything to say about that. And uh, the Internet Archive and online libraries think that it should work the same way in the digital world. Mm -hmm. The problem is that in a digital world, everything is a copy. 
right? We are sending ones and zeros and creating another copy on the user's computer temporarily while they read. And publishers are frightened, and I think justifiably so, that they can't keep track of all of the digital reproductions. And even though Internet Archive swears that they are only lending on a one-to-one -one basis, it's very difficult for a publisher to verify that and to make sure that copies aren't multiplying uh, in ways that harm their bottom line. Here's a question. What percentage of authors, say, would be affected by this? Like how many people in the, in the millions of books that the Internet Archive has scanned would actually be affected by like a loss of sales given, you know, having written a book that came out in 2011, I don't think I've got any royalty checks for a while, you know? So I'm wondering, you know, how many people are actually affected by this? It's basically like the top of publishers lists that they're worried about, which generate most of the revenue. Uh, so I I couldn't put any numbers on that. One would have to do a, a statistical study of what kind of revenues authors are getting from this. But copyright isn't only about authors. It's supposed to be primarily about authors, and there are ways in which that doesn't work. But copyright is also about protecting publishers and distributors mm -hmm. and making sure that they have the revenue to... Uh, to uh, pay authors and distribute books in the first place. And copyright is always a trade-off between the initial creation and distribution of the book and further creation and distribution of the book. Uh, and that trade-off is we restrict uh, copying of the book, we restrict some distribution of the book in order to, to create financial incentives to pay authors for the initial creation and distribution of the book in order to ensure that authors can make a living, in order to ensure that publishers can stay in business. And that traditional business model is one that was written for books. And yes, the basic trade-off could very well change in a digital world, but that's going to require congressional action. I don't think it's appropriate for judges to be saying, well, now that everything's digital, um, we're going to set the new policies here. Um, let's go back to the phone lines here. Let's take uh, Laura joining us from Austin, Texas. Welcome. Hi, Alexis, and thanks for taking my question. Um, I'm an educator and a researcher who uses the Internet Archive every day, literally every day, and I want to thank Brewster and all the people behind the scenes who have built up this library over the past 10 years. Um, Brewster mentioned the cooperation between the archive and Wikipedia, and I'm hoping he could tell us some more about the different ways that the archive supports Wikipedia and what the lawsuit could mean for that going forward. Um, just speaking for myself, I'm really worried that if we are limited to old books in the public domain, books that are 100 years old or more, it's going to undermine the fact-checking work we all need to be doing, um, especially with the advent of writing bots, right, that are going to be spewing out even more misinformation on the internet than ever before. So what, are the publishers going to stop this whole Wikipedia integration? What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Brewster? So thank, thank you, Laura. And yes, it's absolutely critical. In fact, the, uh, the executive director of Wikipedia said she was worried that truth might fracture 
that basically uh, Wikipedia might come apart because of well-paid um, propaganda seeping into Wikipedia. So they need good sources. And the one of the ways that Wikipedia becomes stay strong is you need to be able to click on the links and justify and, and verify the claim that is in. It. So we uh, went and uh, found broken links and fixed 17 million broken links in Wikipedia articles and put them back to the Wayback Machine. And we've now uh, put 1 million links to over 250,000 books that were bought, fully paid for, um, and then digitized. And then such that if there's a page number, it turns right to the right page. Actually, oh, and my next door neighbor, uh, Carmen, who's 15 years old, she she lit up and said, I can use that because in her school, she couldn't quote in her papers from Wikipedia, but she could quote from a book <laughs> and making it so that she could dive in, get it. And then in the middle of the night, get back. That was it warmed my heart. So will this stop this? Well, I, I hope not, Laura. Um, I think the idea of being able to get in and out of Wikipedia articles is just such an obvious good that I'm hoping that people kind of see that fact-checking out of these this uh, literature is important. But will a judge in New York go and say uh, that nothing even out of print can be available from the 20th century to anybody that's a digital learner? Is it within their power to do that? Yes. But even this most recent judge, we think he made factual errors and also errors in law. And that's why we're appealing. Mm. So it is important to have people. And I think people are starting to really come around to how important this is and how surprising this judge's judgment was um, such that we had even Supervisor Chan the, um, in San Francisco bring to the Board of Supervisors support of controlled digital lending in the Internet Archive. And it was passed unanimously two days ago um, at this at City Hall. So we're encouraged that people are starting to understand that supporting digital learners, supporting Wikipedia is actually what the copyright laws were for. It's what libraries are for. And I haven't seen a law going and saying we don't want libraries anymore. Um, we're under attack in many different ways, book bannings, books being changed, um, uh, people showing up with guns to, to reading hours, um, these sorts of lawsuits. Um, but I think we'll prevail because libraries are so important for the functioning of democracy. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in another caller with a bit of a different perspective. Peter in San Francisco, welcome. Yes, hi. Thanks very much for having this uh, important discussion. I'm a little disappointed that you don't have representatives from authors of various kinds, such as the Authors Guild, which supports the judge's ruling very strongly, and publishers who uh, are, after all, the ones that are putting into uh, concrete form what the authors have created. So two things that I'm concerned with very much. One is killing the goose that's laying the golden eggs. If authors who spend time and effort and money of all kinds to do the research and so on, and publishers who put it together with fact checkers, editors, illustrators, graphic designers, and book producers, and then distribution and so on, if they don't have... Uh, protection of cop from copies being distributed for free, uh, then the whole economic underpinnings of 
the creative process, the research project process, and so on, uh, I think could be seriously undermined. And that's what I mean by killing the goose that lays the golden egg, the, uh, the hurting the publishers and authors and per- perhaps driving them out of business altogether. Um, the uh, other thing that I'm concerned with is the integrity of the product. Uh, it's a lot harder, as Brewster has mentioned, to change thousands of copies of books distributed in all kinds of libraries and homes and so on. Uh, electronically, it's easy to change. Um, but we haven't heard how this free copying uh, and distribution that is his model is supposed to be maintaining the integrity uh, of the original uh, or of the various versions and issues and and editions. And uh, that, to me, seems to be something that the copyright also protects, as well as libraries and people's private holdings. We don't know what's going to happen with maybe the Internet Archive will change hands. Maybe it will have a new owner sometime, certainly at some point in the future. And there's no guarantee that anything will be maintained the way it is currently. It's not a public institution. Basically, it's run as uh, the owner wishes. So I think there are a lot of questions, but copyright, I think, also is a matter of how something is being used. Uh, For example, plays and movies, those are also leased in terms of how many people are going to watch a play, is the play copyright owner willing to let a certain group put it on, and so on and so forth. So it's not unusual to expect controls on use by the copyright owner. Um, You know, Peter, one of the things I wanted to to ask you is, do you see that what the Internet Archive is doing, like say with the one-to-one lending model where they've just, you know, they've scanned a single copy and they've lent out a single copy, do you see that as equivalent to what libraries have done in the past? Uh, No, because libraries in the past, if we're going back to the book model, which was in place for hundreds of years since the Constitution, certainly. Uh, The book has a limited ability to be distributed. Uh, On the one hand, it can only be lent to one person at a time who has a a library card. And typically, those are somewhat geographically restricted. With uh, Internet access, there's a gigantic possibility for not just the loaning of material, essentially all over the world, but also for the recipients to then make their own copies and make their own distribution. Whereas that's not possible if you are restricted from making copies, which is part of what this lawsuit and the judge's judge judgment said is a violation of copyright. You can't make a copy and then treat right. it as though it's the original. Peter, thanks for your perspective. We'll get back with some responses to it right after the break. We're talking about the Internet Internet Archive, which is fighting a lawsuit from publishers who claim that the archive's digital lending practices violate copyright law. Joined by Brewster Kale of the Archive, Sidney Johnson of KQED, and Tyler Ochoa of Santa Clara University School of Law. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the Internet Archive, which is fighting a lawsuit from publishers who claim that the archive's digital lending practices violate copyright law. The Internet Archive, of course, says it is uh, merely carrying on the longstanding tradition of libraries. We're joined this morning by Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive, Tyler Ochoa, professor uh, of law at Santa Clara University School of Law, specialist in, in copyright law. And we also have Sydney Johnson with us, a reporter with KQD News. You know, Sydney, I wanted to come with you before the break. We were listening uh, and talking with Peter from San Francisco, a caller, um, about authors and kind of representing their needs and kind of the, the, the nature of, of copyright and its uses. Um, what do you think about this, just as, you know, someone who's both been covering this as well as, you know, someone who writes yourself? Right. Um, so I think Peter raised some really important points, right? There are authors out there who completely agree with this ruling, who say, hey, this is my precious work that I want to have there to be control around how it's distributed. I want to make sure that I'm getting the credit and compensation for this work. Um, I my, One of my first jobs actually in journalism was working as a fact checker. So, so mm. that really <laughs> struck a chord. Um, and I think also that Sometimes we maybe assume that the pre-digital library system was flawless. You know, I, I think that the digital age has sped up a lot of the possibility of sharing and copying. But, you know, there was always an opportunity for someone with a library card to hand the book to someone else um, or to potentially take photographs of those um, pages in a book and and these sorts of things. We've just really accelerated that pace. And now we are seeing a need for law and copyright law to have to decide what is okay and what is not. Um, And I also, during this reporting process, you know, as a writer, I, I, you know, inherently, I think, would probably have come to this story with the same perspective as Peter. Um, But then I met an author named Betta Anderson, and she is a novelist based in Amsterdam. Um, And she actually said that one of her books she discovered was on the Internet Archive during the pandemic when she was using the website and that it actually got her more readers. It, It broadened the amount of people who were exposed to her book. And then she believes that that led to more people purchasing it also. Um, So I think there is a case to be made for just, uh, you know, having a wider realm of exposure for books and that that can actually be good for publishers and some authors, too. Um, I'm not saying that's always the case, but that is that is an outcome that can happen in this uh, ecosystem as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. I mean, also, there's a lot of issues about the book publishing industry, which I'm just bracketing right now and putting over <laughs> to the side. Like the consolidation there has really been mm-hmm. been wild, as mm-hmm. it has been in many parts of our economy. Um, let's bring in uh, Colin in Berkeley. Welcome. 
Hi, thank you. Um, I wanted to quickly respond to the caller's point. Um, it's for a very long time, libraries have been allowed and have effectively doing something called creating an access copy. So you have a preservation copy, which you sequester so that it may be preserved for many, many years, and you allow access to the surrogate that you've created. That's all the Internet Archive is doing. They're sequestering the print, creating a copy through which they can provide access to one person at a time. The other point I would make, I'm at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. We are partners with the Internet Archive. We have donated over 60,000 items to them because we are running out of physical space to hold the print. Mm. They're doing our constituents a tremendous service, but also one of our European vendors did an analysis and in academic publishing and religion and theology, only 5% of the corpus of currently published material in copyright has an electronic version that we can buy. Mm. As our programs are going online, people cannot afford to live in the Bay Area, so they're staying at a distance and uh, doing our programs online. We can't provide them access to the print. We need to have electronic sur- uh, surrogates to provide and the publishers aren't giving us enough attention. They're not uh, working with our discipline to provide those versions that we can buy. So, you know, we turn to the Internet Archive. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, just to to emphasize for listeners what you just said, that in your particular realm of academic work, 95% of the published works, there actually is no ebook that would be available to purchase in the way that at least the judge in this particular case, thinks it should work. Absolutely. And the other thing they do very often is a publisher will delay release of an electronic book for six or eight months. So if we're in a position where we need to provide that work in support of a class, we can't wait six months because the class is finished. We have to buy the print. And then they come out and say, oh, well, why don't you buy the electronic version now? Well, we can't afford to buy two copies of every book. We're a small institution. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Um, uh, Colin, thanks so much for sharing that uh, perspective from uh, from the library. Um, the, uh, you know, one of our callers, Peter, mentioned earlier that the Authors Guild, uh, which is one group of authors, supported this uh, judge's uh, decision in this lawsuit. Another uh Group, uh, the Authors Alliance tweets, uh, we're a nonprofit authors organization whose members support the public interest in libraries. We filed an amicus brief in this suit outlining the many ways that controlled digital lending supports authors and is highly unlikely to harm most authors. So that is to say, in support of uh, Brewster and the Internet Archive. Um, Jake writes in to say, I know that a recent court decision held that Google Books' use of digital copies was considered, quote, fair use. So I was curious how the situation here differs from that court's decision. Tyler Ochoa? So that is a very important precedent. The court said that Google could scan millions of books and could create essentially a database of text, make it available for full text searches, But the court expressly said it was a fair use because Google did not display the full text to users, right? Google can tell you whether a search term is in a book. Google can show you three very, very short snippets or excerpts that uh, give you a little bit of context as to where that search might be in a book. They can tell you how many times a search term shows up in a book. But the court expressly said that if Google um, showed the full text of the book 
two users, then that would not be a fair use. Hmm. So the Court of Appeals indicated sort of what's the outer boundary of fair use in this uh, environment. And at the same time, it ruled in favor of libraries regarding things like print disabled books. Um, I think the Google Books precedent is a very strong precedent for things like machine learning. So many of the things that Brewster is talking about would be supported by fair use. But the uh, I think the, the judge is right that under current precedents, the controlled digital lending is not a fair use. Hmm. Well, did the judge also rule that like what Google was doing was sort of a transformative in some sense, or, or was it just that it was limited in these crucial ways? So transformative is a term of art in copyright law. The Supreme Court has held that transformative uses and transformative purposes are favored, uh, they're more likely to be a fair use. They're not automatically fair use. And um, transformative is a very tricky thing. If you're changing the content in some way, that's transformative in a sense, but it might or might not be transformative for purposes of copyright. And some purposes are considered transformative even though the content hasn't changed at all. So in the Google Books case, they said, you're scanning these millions of books, you're creating a full text database. Because such a database does not exist and because you're able to search for particular terms, that is a transformative purpose, even though the content of the books hasn't been transformed. Mm -hmm. uh, but here, I think when you are lending when you are making a reproduction of the book and making the full text available for people to read, it's hard to see how that's a transformative purpose. Mm -hmm. That's in direct competition with reading physical books, with reading ebooks that are provided by publishers. Mm -hmm. uh, the district court here, here said that that was not mm -hmm. transformative within the meaning of copyright law. Brewster, do you disagree about that? How the Internet Archive is used and these collections are used is absolutely a very different model from sort of beach reading. Um, so it, it, the idea of taking a book and putting it on your Kindle and uh, reading it on an airplane is not how we see the Internet Archive's collections used. Fortunately, we've got real experience on this. Um, it, we've found there was even economists that were uh, pouring over the publisher's data about whether there was any increase or decrease in sales. Um, based on the National Emergency Library, not only just controlled digital lending, and they found none. But the but the idea of how these are used, I find fascinating. The people are in and out of these books in five minutes, ten minutes. Um, that they are using them kind of as web pages to help them understand their current world. Um, that when I uh, there's a wonderful book called Digital Copyright by Jessica Littman. And um, she freed it from the publishers when they brought it out of print. And I tried reading our scan of her book. And it was difficult compared to 
what you could do with a reflowable one on the website. Mm -hmm. But ours had page numbers. So if there was a citation, a footnote that referred into her book, ours would have it. The Kindle version wouldn't. We can weave ours into the web and it's being used at for website readers to, to know what's going on. It, and what we're talking about here is 26 checkouts per year. If people are going to check it out for the two weeks, then uh, to, to try to read um, these books because they're not available in any other way, um, then we're talking about 26 checkouts a year. That's, is that the average? Um, no, no, no. That's as much as you possibly can do. Oh, 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 oh I see. somebody waiting every possible moment. What we see is these books get used a little bit um, over time. And remember, we have millions of books, and mostly from the 20th century. Most of these are way out of print. We don't even make available for lending things that are within the most recent five years, just to stay out of the way of publishers. And if they go and, and give us a list of books to take down, we do. Or if authors do, we do. Um, you know, we're a nonprofit organization here, a library. We're not about combating. We're about trying to help people. So that's why we buy books at full retail um, to go and support publishers and reader and uh, authors and try to preserve and make them uh, available. It's a very different use case than the Kindle um, right, right. by uh, those books that uh, we're being sued over. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in Newpor in Sunnyvale. Welcome, Newpor. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, this is such an important issue that I'm so passionate about because I come from a, a country in the global south, India, and I'm also now um, a lecturer, a professor in a university in California. So I, it's safe to say that I wouldn't have gotten to this position or gotten a PhD or even been in academia without resources like the Internet Archive, uh, as well as Wikipedia, but also uh, a broader sort of regime of what is quote-unquote called piracy. Um, and, and I think that your speakers might actually be well aware of this. There was a very famous case of uh, the Oxford University Press uh, suing uh, Delhi University in India over, uh, over a similar issue, although it was a small photocopy service that was sued for basically you know, uh, reproducing books mm -hmm. without permission. Um, luckily enough, they, they didn't win the case. The, the press didn't win the case. Um, but I just want to re-emphasize and iterate that uh, as someone who's also been editing Wikipedia since she was young uh, and, and knowing that I would not have gotten access to so much of that information without resources like this. And now uh, as a professor who repeats these same practices and tells my students that you're not beholden to, you know, paying for knowledge, because even when I publish my own articles, um, you know, I don't particularly get a penny from publishing any research that's funded by the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, but publishers and, and all the middlemen in between seem to be making a whole lot of money based mm -hmm. on this information should, that should be free in the first place. Um, so I just hope that the American public in general also gets aware about how copyright is, is crap and it's wielded as a tool against the public. Thank mm -hmm. you. Newport, thank you for that um, strong take. Appreciate your your perspective and, and your journey. I, um, Sydney, I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, we are in a place maybe where there's various different shoulds going on here. Like, this is how this really should work. Could you talk to me a little bit about, is there any hope of getting legislation to change some of these things, to carve out 
um, some of this non-commercial space? Or are we just sort of not like this is going to just be settled in the courts, not um, in any legislative fashion? Well, of course, I'm I'm speculating a bit here, but I think that that's ultimately what might have to happen. Um, you know, this is a case that's probably going to go on for a few more years um, as the appeals process goes forward. Um, and the technology is not slowing down. You know, there are lots of problems in the publishing industry beyond clearly just this this case and, and digital lending. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I kind of think that it might be up to, you know, lawmakers to eventually decide either way on this. Um, that's that's kind of my guess on it. I want to make sure we get to just a few last comments here. I've got one from Cole. This is sounding a lot like the Napster issues of 20 years ago, for those who remember that music file sharing site. Are there relevant case files there? Sadly, the results of those cases mean that musicians no longer make a living from their recordings unless they're the biggest stars of the day. Patrick, in a similar vein, writes in to say, how do you incentivize authors and publishers to create more works if libraries are allowed to replace their sales with essentially limitless reproductions? Publishers have money, but authors still need to pay the rent. Another listener writes, kind of in a different tack here, there are people who miss being able to find books that are no longer in print, as used bookstores are continuing to close their doors or trim their shelves. Schools and universities are shrinking or closing their libraries. People look for places to give their old books as they move to smaller places, and so many pages are going to paper recycling. Where will these books be found if not in an accessible online archive? Even a single purchase book could have a multitude of readers over the years, sometimes as a resale, but mostly by giving it to a friend, not by paying the publisher every time it is read. What about the rights of authors who want to share their creative ideas? What a loss of knowledge, history, and opportunity for people to learn unless they can afford to pay. One last one, a listener writes in to say, in higher education, the drive for no-cost textbooks has resulted in huge sections of books being plagiarized and offered as new material identified by the, quote, creator of the no-cost textbook without any mention of the source. This is modeling the very worst behavior to students. I've seen this firsthand. We have been talking about the future of libraries and the Internet Archive, which is fighting a lawsuit from publishers who claim that the Internet Archive's digital lending practices violate copyright law. We have been joined by Brewster Kale, digital librarian and founder of the Internet Archive, Sydney Johnson, reporter with KQED News, and Tyler Ochoa, professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.